0: This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.
1: Welcome to EarthWise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. Welcome to
0: EarthWise. I'm Lois Griffiths. Well, Martin's not very well, but my son Alan is here to see what's happening. And today's guest is New Zealand Nikki Hogger, author and investigative journalist based in Wellington. Nikki has written seven books since 1996, covering topics such as intelligence networks, environmental issues, and politics. And Nikki is one of two New Zealand members of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Welcome to Earthwise, Nikki.
1: Morning. Hello.
0: I think it's Hogger, Nikki?
1: It's Hogger. Thank you. I'm sorry.
0: Well, Nikki, you were in July, it was? You were at a keynote speaker at Data Harvest, the European Investigative Journalism Conference. Where was this conference held, and who attended?
1: It was in May, and it was a it was a remarkable event. It was held in a, a, small medieval town in Belgium, just north of Brussels. Wow! And it's the place where each year, something like, well, between five and six hundred investigative journalists from fifty something countries wow. around Europe and further afield gather, and, you know, support each other and talk about how to do their work. And it was a it was a great thing to be at. It's
0: quite an honor to to you to be the keynote speaker wasn't it
1: I've, i w- <clears throat> I was honored and and slightly worried about it at first but I real and but in fact I realized that I had some things that I really wanted to say to to my colleagues and it, and it went down well
0: I like the idea of international support particularly this time when there seems to be so much censorship actually um, these
1: these are people who came from all kinds of countries there were people there from Uzbekistan through mm. to you know France and Germany and places and and the great thing about it is that although people did live in different environments some of them had s- serious problems with the p- secret police or whatever and other people didn't but that actually everyone was on a pretty similar mission people were people were people were motivated by the same things as someone is in New Zealand which is not liking injustice feeling motivated about the environment, feeling motivated about war. And so our differences were much smaller than our similarities.
0: It's wonderful to know that there are such people. Was there anybody from Australia?
1: No, because it was the European Investigative Journalism Conference, I okay. wasn't more people from outside the world so much. I was, I was an exception because I was being
0: a speaker. So, of course, it was European Investigative Journalism Conference. Yes. And the title of your talk was Investigative Journalism in Times of Trouble. Well, there are plenty of times of trouble now, aren't there?
1: Yeah, that was, just, that was the topic they gave me. And and the way I interpreted it was, obviously, we, we all know what the times of trouble means. And they were thinking about the war in Ukraine, of course. But there are many more troubles than that. There's, there's what's happening with climates, and there's what's happening with human rights in different parts of the world. And there's the, the threats to democracy, including in Europe. Mm. And so I, I used the speech as an opportunity to talk about big things, big issues that affect people doing investigative journalism, all sorts of big issues, um, and how we do it. But also to drill down to not just saying that it's terrible what's happening in Ukraine or something like that, but saying how do we look at this critically and what, we sh- what should we be thinking about and what are the things that, we should, that investigative journalists should think about when they're uh, approaching issues like that
0: is get the impression from the well, mainstream media that everybody's singing from the same song sheet?
1: Yeah, I, they probably are, and I think it's mostly because people don't, know, don't know, know much about it. And so it sounds like you're saying the right thing when you say the same thing which is coming through all the Anglo-American major news organizations and reproduced in the news organizations here. But that doesn't mean that you're actually understanding what's happening in Ukraine or why it happened and where it's going, and how it can be resolved, often often we're repeating rather
0: than understanding. That's the impression I get. One of my favorite journalists of all times was the late right Robert Fisk, and he always pointed out that when something was in the news, there should be a separate little paragraph that gives a background to it. Things don't just stop at, start at one point. He was quite a brilliant historian, wasn't he, as well as covering oh, yes. current events.
1: Yes, in fact, I met him at an earlier investigative journalism conference in Norway. Ah. He, he, was, he was a hero for lots of us.
0: He came to, to Christchurch once. We actually interviewed him.
1: Oh, very good.
0: The, the, one of the co- topics you did speak about was warfare, and I'm hearing so much about it, it's almost assumed. That um, of course we're going to have more and more war, and of course we must have more and more weapons, but there must be movements in a different direction calling for diplomacy.
1: There are, but in the I was actually, I felt I, when I was at this Brussels conference, I felt I had to be quite careful because mm. people were feeling very destabilized and threatened by by an independent country being invaded by Russia. They. It wasn't an easy subject to talk about, so I approached it delicately. But what I was saying was, sort of beware, whenever one side is fighting another side, a huge wave of propaganda goes and advances in front of it. Mm, and, yeah. and what happens is that that the people that you're fighting are called the new Hitler, and I gave examples about how that's used over and over again, and they're monsters and they're irrational and they're it's isolated much of which is just propaganda. And it doesn't help you if you don't understand, if, if you're not prepared to understand why, why different part, parties to a war do what they do, then you're you're kind of useless. You're not contributing anything helpful to people to try to figure out how to get out of it.
0: Yes, you have to practice the art of diplomacy, which is the ability to look at the world through somebody else's eyes, and things might look quite different. I agree. The the point you made is made by Jonathan Cook, actually. He's a friend of ours. Was he at the meeting, Wendy the I don't know. Uh, Ah. One point you made in your your speech was war propaganda that you're, you're against an enemy, and it's a new Hitler, and somebody else is a new Hitler. There's been a lot of that, hasn't there?
1: There has been. And the thing which is missing is why... Did Russia do this? Yeah. What was going on? Why would it do something which was so demonstrably risky for it, and going to cause it a lot of trouble for it as well as others? And that was almost absent from the discussion. It was, and that's why you need—they needed the madman kind of stories so that it filled the space where otherwise there was a huge question mark of what what was going on for Russia that made it take this you know, deeply uh, illegal and wrong step. And, of course, the answer to that is that it was being pressured and pressured and pressured by weapons being brought closer to its borders, that more and more countries were being encouraged and allowed, of its neighbours were being encouraged and allowed to join NATO, which is its traditional enemy, and bringing weapons closer and closer to the Russian border, which, for example, uh, other countries like the United States or Britain would never tolerate. Yeah.
0: Not that, even in that, Cuba. <laughs>
1: yes, that neighbouring countries were bringing weapons closer to them and um, building a ring of hostile um, borders around them. But none of this was talked about. It was, And none of this justifies, by the way, going to war, I have to say. But if we, if we don't understand why someone does something, we're, 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 we're much less capable of doing something about it.
0: And something must be done. I mean, this, this stage... This age of such frightening weapons, I don't know that much about weaponry, but this, the, the uh, killing ability, the, the new weapons, supersonic, whatever, and the nuclear weapons, it's, it's scary, isn't it?
1: Of course. Um, people who The other thing that I would say is that most people who talk about war have not researched war. They have no idea about how it is a total breakdown of human civilization and 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 just the utterly terrible things that happen there that that will traumatize the people involved including the soldiers potentially for the rest of their lives it's such a terrible step to take and it's such a terrible thing in this case to enthusiastically maintain and to fuel it's people again this explains why just relying on the daily news and the daily sort of um, one-sided news doesn't help us. We need people who dig deeper into it and who are going to, to to tell the tell the stories which aren't you're not getting through the general media.
0: We're sorry. We're sorry to uh, interject, but we're not being told by who benefits from this war. And the armaments companies in America are making you know hundreds of millions out of this.
1: Armaments countries, armaments companies, always make money, and it's. I've always. Want, I've. I've never been able to get my head around how big an influence they are, but mm. they're one of the influences. But the other is that what what's going on in Ukraine is that the West, and particularly the United States, are enthusiastically encouraging this war now. They Absolutely. are seeing it as an opportunity for a proxy war. Well, they a stop proxy war between themselves and the and and the, the, Russia with no, with no, um, with, sort of like with their hands clean, because they're just pouring in weapons. And, and
0: it feels like, to me, that the U.S. is at war with Russia, really, and they're doing it via Ukraine. They're
1: doing it in Ukraine, which is the in point. Ukraine. They're doing it on, this is like France in the First World War or something, they're doing it amongst other people's lives and houses and farms, yes.
0: One of the points you made in your, in your talk it was a brilliant talk by the way and it is available on the computer was that uh, it makes sense to concentrate on our own countries and our own allies and an issue that interests me is well, like Alan mentioned the profit making but do you know that our own New Zealand super fund invested Raytheon yes
1: I do know that
0: I've tried um, to bring it up and not gotten anywhere with it
1: so um, Raytheon is a is a well-known, very large milit- military and industrial complex company, and and the, and the New Zealand um, New Zealand shouldn't be investing money there. I think that's what you're saying, and I would agree with that. Yes.
0: Yes. I mean, war profiteers. It seems to me that's just as bad as doing the actual fighting. Yes. You're listening to Earthwise broadcasting in Christchurch on Plains FM 96.9, in Hamilton on Free FM, and Waikanae on Coast Access Radio. Today's guest is New Zealand investigative reporter Nikki Hager. Nikki, I think, I suspect the reason you're so highly respected internationally is your exposure of the Echelon system. That was that a coup of yours, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was. That, was. that was my first book, which was about, it was about the things that Edward Snowden would reveal many years later, but, but before he did it, before, you know, an earlier version of what he was talking about. Um, it was about this, the electronic systems which were being used by the United States and its Five Eyes allies to spy on the emails and the phone calls and the texts and the rest of it of, of people around the world. Um, but in fact, that wasn't why I was invited to Brussels. Because history moves on, and I think one person at the conference remembered that and, and mentioned it to me. Most of, the, most of the journalists weren't journalists at 20s years ago, um, so I, I think I was, why was I invited there? I was invited there because one of the organisers um, had read speeches I'd done and used them in, a, in, in her journalism school, and so I was interested to hear more of it as the actual literal reason why it happened.
0: Yes, scoop is the word I meant to use. And this was the book, Secret Power.
1: Yes, secret. Now, Secret Power, I sort of shake my head and wonder when I look back at it, because it took so much effort to take a secret intelligence agency where none of the people who work there were allowed to even tell their families what they did for one day of their lives, their work lives. (coughs) Pardon me. But I eventually got large numbers of the staff to talk to me and to tell me the intimate details of where they worked and what where the office was and what the computer systems were and how they were connected into the united states systems and what the code names were for different parts of it and that's probably why i still do this job today because i realized that by systematic work and through the goodwill of people who believe in the public's right to know this stuff can be done but it can't be done easily it was that that book was um,
0: and a long,
1: the, long project.
0: And you were the one in the whole world that got this story out. That's fantastic. Uh,
1: yes, and I, partly it was my work and partly it was New Zealand because we we do have a culture. I've learned that we have a culture of public spiritedness and, and openness and less formal and less strict, even inside our agent intelligence agencies than you might find in other countries. So it was... The right person looking, but the right people helping.
0: So your message to uh, quite inspirational two journalists, it seems to me there's not just the problem of getting the story out and the information, it's actually getting it published. And you have a very sympathetic publisher, don't you?
1: Yes, one of of the great advantages in my work life has been working with Parson and Burton and with Robbie Burton, the publisher there, who was, was an old friend of mine from when we were both at university and around university age and working on on conservation issues in New Zealand. So we had this long, long friendship. And then I'm lucky enough to have a publisher who has stood by me through thick and thin and published and been willing to tell me when when something's not good enough, but then when it was good enough, stuck with me all the way. I I, I feel very privileged.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, so he respects you. In fact, I'm going to quote him, if you don't mind. This is Robbie Burton the publisher of Nikki Hoggard's books. And he has said, talking about you, his most powerful weapon, and one that lies behind everything he does, is his integrity. His sole motivation is to make the world a better place, and money and power simply do not matter to him. In my view, he is a national treasure. Well, I think you're an international treasure, frankly, and an inspiration to uh, to all journalists, what is your message to young people going into journalism? It can be risky, can't it? Not risky. The main risk in
1: going into journalism in New Zealand is disappointment. It's disappointment of finding a good enough job. But I, I mean, I lecture journalism students every year, and I think it's what I say is it's just as important a job as ever. People, people will always need journalism. It doesn't matter whether the the platforms change, the media organisations change. Being a journalist has been an essential part of having a democratic society. And although the kind of jobs there are aren't always fun, um, as in not enough staff, too much to do, it's an incredibly rewarding job, and and so I'm right behind people still doing that work.
0: And going back to the topic of wars, there's your other books, of course, about um, the Afghanistan war, New Zealand's role that was quite a shocker for the public i think
1: I'd, i've written two books on the afghanistan war the first one which was called other people's wars was a big book um which I, and i think because it was a big book well, less people read it but i want to do a little advertisement for it anybody who actually wants to understand war and how it works and all the aspects of um the inner workings of the military and the inner workings of intelligence and the and the mentalities that drive the people i strongly recommend that book I, as, as i said when it came out and i still believe it anyone who reads that book called other people's wars from the beginning to the end will know more about how our intelligence and military systems work than probably all the mps in parliament it's it's i wrote it as a kind of a briefing as an understanding um as a as a as a, a an education for people who are interested and, and I strongly recommend it.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And um, do you dare tell us, are you working on a new book by any chance?
1: I'm always working on things that might become books, but I'm not, I'm not sure which ones will work yet.
0: One of the issues for me is, a book that comes before America, reading about um, what democracy really is in America. And I've read, um, Noam Chomsky has pointed out, that uh, in a true democracy, the power is coming from the people. But in American politics, you need so much money to get anywhere, you have to borrow huge sums of money from banks or corporations, and then you're bought. So um, I hope it's not quite the situation here in New Zealand, but it's scary, isn't it? Because I think It's it's, it's speaking truth to power, and I think the power is with corporations and not with politicians, in America anyway.
1: It's very confusing for the public because we're, we're brought up being ex- told that the United States is kind of the home of democracy in the world. And so it's hard to get our heads around the fact that while in some respects it's, an, it's a very democratic country and it's got very strong institutions and constitution, in other ways it's, it's almost the leading country in the world for the degeneration of democracy and the undermining of it, by, particularly by corporate power.
0: Mm. We're almost out of time. It's fascinating talking to you. I just want to hear from you a final message for, say, young people thinking of becoming journalists, investigative journalists. What does the profession really mean? When I
1: I teach investigative journalism courses, and what I say is that in a country like New Zealand, don't expect to find jobs advertised saying investigative journalism wanted. But we're (laughs) a country that does still have investigative journalism. People decide that someone has to investigate that environmental issue down the road or someone decides they want to make a documentary or when someone's a, a bit older and, you know, got more time, they want to, they'll they decide that they're going to write a book about the social issue they really care about. And that's the way we do our investigative journalism. We do it as we can, as funding it the way we can, but we still turn out a continuous supply of really important work And so people who, my main message then to young people who'd like to be investigative journalists is don't assume it's impossible. Look around you and you'll see that people are doing it, but they're doing it in their their spare time. They're doing their main job and then doing it in the evenings. They're doing it for a while and then having to go back to work. They're finding ways to do it because it's so important. It's such a valuable role in life that people just find a way to do it.
0: Mm. Thank you're talking to us, Nikia. I think um, your message is so important. And uh, I'm glad it's gotten around the world, actually. I'm impressed that you said 500 to 600 journalists from around the world, oh, sorry, from Europe, came yes. to hear you speak. There is some hope, isn't there? And we always have to have hope, don't we? Not only
1: in a sort of forlorn voice, but for every piece of bad news in the world, there are two pieces of good news. Mm. And if we don't notice the good news... <laughs> We're we're lost.
0: Oh, that's another word. Well, Nikki, I'm so worried about Julian Assange, and I'm sure you are too. What can we? What can the New Zealand public do to help? And
1: most of what's needed for Julian Assange is far away from us. It's we need. It's going to be decided by courts. It'll be decided by some governments, like the Australian government, if they can have the courage to help their citizen. Mm. Um, But the main thing we can all do, the main thing we must all do, a little bit like that war we were talking about, is not to succumb to the propaganda about him, to the he's a really awful person. He's he's a Everyone who knows his name has heard how much he's been smeared and put down. But speaking about him as someone who regards him as a friend and thinks of him as one of the heroes of our age, the, the main thing we can do is to continue to respect him and to remember him and to follow the news about him and to talk about him so he doesn't – So that, and the more he's talked about, and the more he's remembered, the harder it will be to do the unspeakable things they're talking of doing, which is extraditing him to the U.S. and putting him in a prison for a hundred or more years.
0: I know. I've pleaded with our own New Zealand government to offer him asylum. But they, they don't seem to be impressed by anything I say. Well, thank you again, Dickie. It's wonderful to, to talk to you again. So from Earthwise? Goodbye. Goodbye.